This is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning essayist and writer. Known best for his savvy pieces published in The New Yorker, his credits include writing lyrics and librettos and delivering lectures. He's published prolifically. His latest book is The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, and it questions why we seek to better ourselves. Adam Gopnik, what a pleasure to have you here on Meet the Writers. It it is wonderful to be here. I have to just jump in, first of all, and ask you, were you a child actor? I was indeed a child actor. If you had been in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, sometime in the mid-60s, and you had a taste for avant-garde theater, you would have thought of me as your own Shirley Temple. Because <laughs> I, was the, I was the child actor in a company led by a man who became a very famous avant-garde director, Andre Gregory, of My Dinner with Andre fame, but of countless brilliant productions of Chekhov and so on. But when Andre was starting off, he needed a kid in the company for all the kid roles, and he plucked me out. And I did everything with him from Brecht to a a mad play by an avant-gardist named Rochelle Owens, in which I was killed in the first scene and then had to lie, my body festering for the next two and a half hours, stretched out across styrofoam rocks. So the answer to your question is yes, Uh, I was a a child actor. And of course, we've seen you in a movie recently. Yes, that, you know... So whenever anyone says Gopnik makes an you know, unexpected cameo, I say, no, 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 I've been doing this my whole life. You just haven't <laughs> seen me. If you had seen me stretched out dead, you would know it was nothing to hold up my end of a conversation with Kate Blanchett. Tell us a little bit about Todd. Well, it was a funny thing. So I got an, uh, an email and then a phone call from uh, Todd Field, who I didn't know, saying charmingly, I've written a new movie for Kate Blanchett and there's a character in it named Adam Gopnik. And I wonder if you would consider playing the part, which was a lovely way to suggest it. And I said, no, you know, I don't do that. I'm a serious writer. I write about, you know, mass incarceration and gun violence and and six ways of reading Proust. And uh, it's very flattering, but I wouldn't do it. And he said, in effect, oh, that's a terrible shame because we'd love to bring you and your wife to Berlin for a, a week to enjoy the city. And Kate will be just crushed because she's been so looking forward to the idea of interacting with someone with your intellect and charisma and now we'll have to find a mere actor to play the part. So I said, hold the phone. I'll call Mr. Gopnik to the phone. <laughs> it's an old Woody Allen line, but it was essentially what, it was more or less what happened. Went off to Berlin. We shot it for two days. You know, wonderful working with a, a master. You know, I was, I, without, you know, truly I was in the middle of writing this book, which was about mastery, so I was particularly interested in working with someone as good as, as Kate Blanchett. She was astounding. As I've said to to people at times, it was like playing with Serena Williams, right? In tennis, only Serena knows that she has to make the shot good but make it totally playable for you. And so she, Kate, in effect, would hit the ball where she knew I could return it, not on my backhand, not right to the net. And so we had a wonderful two days doing it. And then Martha, my wife, and I greatly enjoyed our time in Berlin, where we had never been. And then, you know, flew off and sort of forgot about it. And then last fall, when it came out, suddenly it became a little thing. And I even got a shout-out on the Oscars. Jimmy Kimmel made an Adam Gopnik joke. And you can imagine our little living room kind of came alive. (laughs) And you got, you know, I got texts from people I hadn't spoken to in 20 years. And a little part of me thinks, well, when I wrote the 
five thousand words on six ways of reading Proust, you could have you could have texted me then. <laughs> you could have said something nice. Could have said, "Great to hear from you." But anyway, they they didn't. So it was fun. Yeah. Well, of course, that's all about music. And yes. one of the first things that you mastered was, in fact, music, because you taught yourself to play the guitar at the age of twelve. Yes, I think that I think I am one of approximately two billion twelve-year-old <laughs> boys in nineteen sixty-eight who got. Uh, cheap folk guitars and a big book of Beatle chords and set about learning the guitar. And it was a transformative moment in my life because I didn't have any, wasn't known to have any musical talent particularly. And playing guitar chords is a surprisingly difficult thing. You have to form bar chords. So it's a hard thing for a 12-year-old to do. Stretch your top finger across the neck of a guitar. And I just sat there, my fingers bleeding, my hands aching for day upon day upon week upon week, and I learned C, G, E minor, A minor, the way every kid does. And as I say in the book, it remains the... I still play guitar, and it remains the foundation. I don't play guitar well. I play guitar. I actually had one gig on stage. I did a, a little concert at Fiat where I got to, to clock the guitars with a wonderful singer and a, a great pianist. It was in the pandemic, so you, you, you know, they took who they could get. <laughs> Uh, but it, it's remained the foundation of everything I feel I've accomplished since. That sense that you get that there's an, a formidable task that looks completely undoable when you begin, which then gives way to sheer perseverance, is I think one of the, as I said a moment ago, one of the transformative experiences any of us can have. And it's exactly by accumulating those experiences of accomplishment that we begin to find ourselves, not only find the one that we want to do in life, but believe that we are capable of doing the one that we want to do. Mm. And we'll look at the various things that you right. tried, but I wonder why you settled on the thing that you do do, your main thing that you do do in life, which is writing and, and art. Yes, well, somebody said very uh, acutely, one of the British reviewers, of course, not an American reviewer, that the the sort of the, if you know, if we were post-structuralist critics, we would nod sagely at this idea that though the book is about drawing and dancing and boxing and all of my, the comedy of my inadequacy, that the book is really about my search for the perfect sentence. And I think there's some truth in that. I love to write. Writing has been my passion and my vocation since I was very young and is the thing I have done publicly for 40 years and millions of, of published words. But it's built into the nature of that kind of kind of core accomplishment or vocation that we, those of us in the middle of it, no matter what it, the one is that you are in the middle of, we don't see our accomplishments. We don't sense our accomplishments. We sense only the gap between the scale of our original ambitions and our accomplishments. And since that's going to be always unbridgeable, unless you're crazy narcissist rather than just an ordinary narcissist like a writer, you know when you pick something up, no matter how artisanal, how much craft and and how hard you work, and I know that no writer could work harder at shaping sentences than I do, that all I see is that space, right? I, it, between the scale of my ambitions to write a sentence that will somehow have the ornate psychological delicacy of Proust and the break-your-heart-and-funny-bone simultaneously punch of S.J. Perlman, that's the ambition, and one always is is short of it. And so part of the pleasure of doing other things, things that one actually may do quite badly, is that it reminds you of the the process. The, mm. Not only reminds you of the mental process, that business of breaking something down into all of these small, stubborn steps, which then, just like with the guitars and the big book of Beatle chords, become music over time through sheer uh, persistence. 
it not only reminds you of how that happens, it also supplies that wonderful cognitive opiate that's sometimes called the flow, but I think of a simple absorption. What is happiness except absorption in something outside ourselves? And that's a hard uh, sensation to get when you do it all the time. But when you're boxing with complete ineptitude in late middle age in a gym in Williamsburg and you put the sequence of jab, jab, cross, slip, uppercut, slip, hook together properly for once, you get this enormous rush because you say, oh, I didn't think about it. It just happened. I had implanted it so deep within my psyche that it just happened as though I actually could do it. And even though you're doing it ineptly by the exterior standards of an actual boxer, the high that you get from it, the sense of satisfaction, the feeling of the flow is so overwhelming that you just want to do it again. Mm. And it's not something that's available to you typically through the thing you do best. Mm. I mean, I absolutely love the way you've put this together mm. because we're, we're, it's it's a memoir, really. And we're, yes. we're learning so much about you and about your life. And before we sort of go into some of those stories, just expand the title for us because the real work comes from a magician. From magicians, yes. So I followed my then 13-year-old son, Luke, who had um, developed a passion for card magic and had found himself a great teacher. And part of, I hope, the pleasure of this book, or at least certainly part of the substance of the book, is that it's a kind of compendium of great irascible teachers all of whom I fell in love with. Luke's great irascible teacher in card magic was a great sleight of hand man named Jamie Ian Swiss. And Jamie said to Luke, you got to come out to Las Vegas if you want to see real work. And his school was not crazy about this idea of taking a break to go for two weeks to Las Vegas. But <laughs> I followed him, but I thought it sounded like something important. So I followed him. And exactly what happened is, you know, he wanted at that stage to be a lounge magician. It's not his mother's favorite ambition for her son. I followed him there, and over three in the morning, scrambled eggs with the magicians after they were finished with their shows, I heard them, it was like you know a bell perpetually ringing and re-ringing, use this word, phrase, the real work. Who's got the real work on that? Flosso's illusion. Who's got the real work on that? Yeah, you've been checking out that the Erdnay's double shuffle. Who's got the real work on that? Well, what did this mean? And I realized over time that what it meant was not who had invented a particular magic trick or illusion. And it didn't even mean who does it most sensationally. It meant who had arrived first at complete technical expertise in executing it and simultaneously had done it with a kind of empathetic engagement with the audience that made it startling, impressive, because the trick's not in your fingers or even in the technique. The trick is in the exchange mm -hmm. of two minds. Mm -hmm. And you have to, when you're a magician, you have to be anticipating the mind of the of the audience. You have to know the audience already knows that if you tell them to pick a card, you'll know what card you're going to pick. The audience already knows that if you saw a lady in half, you are not sawing a lady in half. And you have to understand the baseline of anticipation that the audience has in order to go around it, in order to lap the track and do it. And so that's what the real work is. It's the combination of technical virtuosity with empathetic engagement. And in everything we do, I think we recognize the real work instantly when we see it. It's mm -hmm. what we think of as, in, in my own passionate field, a writer's voice. You know, when you're looking at manuscripts, if you're an editor, you don't look for a story, you don't look for effect, you look for a voice, you search for a voice, and that voice is the real work. And you also talk about the difference or the similarities between accomplishment and achievement. Yes. You know, why I let Luke, my son, go to Las Vegas at the age of 13 for two weeks. It's exactly because I had become very disturbed 
by the prevalence of the search for achievement in the way we raise kids in America and I think in Britain too and certainly in France. We drive them forward from one exam to the next. We make them think that the ultimate goal of life is to get into the right university. We have a, a kind of narrow, you know, use an old-fashioned expression, a rat race, but it's more like a rat maze that we put them through. And I'm a competitive person and I value achievement myself, but I recognize that it's kind of empty calories from a from a psychic point of view, from the soul-making point of view. Whereas accomplishment is exactly me sitting with those beetle chords. I'm never going to be a guitarist, but I'm, I am creating something, I am accomplishing something that will go with me through life. And I saw in Luke, my then 13-year-old son, that the accomplishment of making cards jump, dance, and knowing where they are was far more satisfying to him as a psychic release and as, a, as an activity in the world than doing trigonometry and Spanish composition mm. in school. And I realized that, oh, accomplishment is the, f- achievement is the drug we force ourselves to take to advance in the world. Accomplishment is the calming foundation which enables us to become ourselves. And this bit tells us a lot about your relationship with your son, not least that you drag him to CD joints at three o'clock in the morning. But it also tells us about your relationship with your father. Yes. Uh, and you talk about that in, in the chapter where you're speaking about learning, learning to, to drive. Tr- learning to drive, yes. Well, one of the truths I think about mastery, about accomplishment, about the pursuit of these things, is that we discover that we are entirely ourselves as we engage in them. We can't cut off, uh, siphon off one little piece of ourselves, which will be devoted to the action. We find all of ourselves is involved. So in learning to drive, which I did very late in life, I was 55, and in fact, Luke, my son and I took the driver's exam in New York on exactly the same day from exactly the same driving inspector, one after another, getting in the car and doing the tests and getting our licenses. And I realized that my hyper-competent father had been driving since he was 14, a kid growing up on a Pennsylvania farm. And all of my life had been spent, so to speak, in the back seat watching my, my, the back of my father's head as he drove. And I realized first that when I was struggling to drive, which I struggled with a great teacher, another one of these extraordinary irascible teachers who I, I characterize in the book, Arturo Leon, that the best way I could do it to calm myself was to become my father, to sort of implant my father inside myself in order to drive. Although Arturo's counsel over and over was become the noodle. Adam, become the noodle, which by which he meant find a moment where you combine the real work. Maximum focus with a feeling and a demonstration of total relaxation, right? The noodle like a damp, wet noodle. You got to look like a damp, wet noodle to impress the driving inspector. While at the same time, like a noodle, you have a kind of core, an el dante core of, of poise. And I realized as I learned to drive how much of my life had been made in a certain sense, we make ourselves, obviously, in our, in our fathers and our mothers in this book, shadow, but we also make ourselves by finding a certain patch of light that they haven't occluded. And in plain English, my dad was so competent that I became less competent and more brilliant, so to speak, that that mm-hmm. became the, the kind of the show-off, the actor side of, of me, I think, was rooted in the fact that my father had no performative side but this extraordinary paterfamilias side. Mm-hmm. And I think that we that we shape ourselves that way. And I think we can't escape it. And everything we do, we are everything we are.
and through our parents. through our, And that, I mean, you've mentioned Proust several times, and of course you've yes. written about Proust, but the uh, chapter about your mother and bread-making throws up what you call an anti-Proustian, Proustian <laughs> moment with your wife. So yes. take us back to the beginning of that, because that's all about baking, and it's about how bread is fascinating as a practice. And Tell as, and as, and as, as, as not a symbol, but as a, as a vessel, a vehicle of femininity in the best sense of, of women. My, I, it's a kind of the chapter in a certain sense is a long pan to my mother and a long apology to my wife because I discovered suddenly that there was this bread recipe that we had salvaged from her mother's house called Martha's Bread. And I said, you never baked bread. And she said, I certainly did. And when we were teenagers, I baked bread all the time. And it got me interested in bread. There was something very sexy about it. And, and there's some amnesia that had affected me. I ended by going up to my mother, who was famously a great bread baker in rural Canada, to learn how to bake bread. And, of course, getting engaged with my mother was a way of, in a funny way, having a conversation with my mother that I couldn't have verbally. It was We were having a conversation with our hands and the microbes of yeast. And my mother had invented this new thing called a boissant, which is a cross between a brioche and a croissant. And when Malcolm, my friend Malcolm Gladwell read the book, he said to me, why have you not commercialized this? He said, I love the book. He said, but the, just crying out for the, you know, Boissant <laughs> franchise to be... Gopnik's Boissant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Gopnik's mother. You know, mom Gopnik's Boissants, uh, which we really should do. And, you know, my mother's impatience, her energy, her creative energy was all manifest to me. And I was, in a sense, making my peace with it. And simultaneously, I was learning and being compelled to remember that, as I say at the end of the chapter, you know, my wonderful wife, Martha, who I think of as a loaf, that is a thing beautiful and finished in itself, was actually a baker. She was a creative force, as I knew she was a creative force, but I had forgotten that she was a a domestic force as well. I've been somewhat overwhelmed by my very large and theatrical Jewish family. And that my mother, who I think of always as a baker, as a kind of prolific generative force, was also a loaf, a human being mm. in need of love and, and uh, a caressing of a kind. So it's about the switch of those two things and about how bread is not just a, a, a vehicle for butter, it's a vehicle for family soul. And for love. For yes. love. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I, I, I was avoiding that word. Yeah. The right I thought, yeah. this will hey, sound I got sentimental. The I'll do the cliche for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a Larkinian thing. It's, it it was, will survive. In the, in the kind of codicil to that chapter, which I wrote, which is one of the last things in the book I wrote, my mother has, you know, is struggling with being in her late 80s now, as, as I will do as well. And um, one of the things I learned is that the... Uh, what's called the mother, which is the sourdough starter that she uses, I wonder what would become of it. And it turns out that every sourdough starter is filled with the bacteria of every baker who's ever worked their hands through it. And that the schmutz, as we say in Yiddish, the schmutz on your mother's hands will survive for hundreds and hundreds of years in the starter. And I said, you know, you know, Philip Larkin said, what will survive of us is love. And no, what will survive of us is schmutz. It's fantastic. But, but schmutz is a form of love. And Absolutely. Worth, Absolutely. And worth sustaining. Yeah. I found the end of the book very, very moving, actually. Thank you. It's... Which is why we now need to talk about your penis. Yes. <laughs> not a, not a, an invitation I've often been given on, on 
40 years on the radio, but it's, it's, it's right there in the book. So it's right it there. I is. put it there. So um, You talk about going to therapy and yes. your need for going to therapy. Right. So, so just tell us more about that. So I had suffered my whole life from a condition whose name I did not know until I went into therapy, which is telling because very often when we have real phobias and anxiety disorders, we don't name them to ourselves. We just suffer with them and we try to find ways around them. So I suffered from a condition, still do, called periuresis, which is shy bladder syndrome, but of an extreme kind. You can't urinate in any public place, and it's particularly intense on planes, as you can imagine, on six and seven and more and longer rides. It turns out to be an extremely widespread uh, phobia among men more than women for reasons we can imagine or not, but it is. Doesn't seem to have any kind of traumatic trigger. It's not that something happened to you once. It just is like so many of these anxiety disorders that afflict us. It's something that came out of nowhere and then you found yourself deep coping with it. And then the coping mechanisms became your addiction, your ways of avoiding it. You don't drink water before you get on a plane, which gives you horrible headaches oh. and, and dehydrates you, but at least enables you not to have to deal with the problem. That's very, as you know, very widespread across a range of anxiety disorders and phobias. We find coping mechanisms that allow us to avoid them. So I finally, after 50 years of suffering with this, I went to another crazy, irascible centaur of a teacher, wonderful therapist named Dan Rocker. And Dan spends his life, or the big chunk of it, treating periuresis sufferers. And the way you treat them is to take men from one bathroom to another. You go up what's called the exposure uh, hierarchy. Mm. You may not be able to pee in a urinal in a in a train station, but if with the in a stall, you might be able to manage in a department store. So you start with the ones you might be able to do. It's hard. You slowly go up it. I thought it was very important to do in a book on mastery for two reasons, Georgina. One, because every book should contain something that you think to yourself, I'll never get away with this, or it will lack the the kind of audacity that make readers feel that you are addressing them honestly which I've tried to do. And the other reason is because that kind of phobia is a kind of, as I say in the book, it's the black mass of mastery. Mm. It's anti-mastery. We have created these prisons in which so many of us are entrapped in one way or another, exactly the same way we create mastery, through these little stubborn building blocks, which then have become this vast imprisoning castle. And the only way to get out of it is the same way we learn guitar, the same way we learn to dance, the same way we learn to box. Step by step, you disassemble it until you find it's no longer as frightening and you look around and realize, oh, it's six inches high and I can step back over it. Yeah, I think the most startling thing for me about that story is that it took you to late middle age to see a therapist. You're Jewish and you live in New York. What's wrong with you? <laughs> because, to be blunt, it was. I felt it shameful. I thought it was shameful and it wasn't something I wanted to talk about, wasn't something I wanted to admit to wasn't something I wanted to make part of the public currency yeah. of my existence. And if there's one thing I learned from Dan is that shame is a horribly debilitating emotion. And the great thing he said over and over is everybody's got something. Everybody's dealing with something. You sit in the subway car, you look around, every single person. That one can't get an MRI. That one's got an eating disorder. That one can't fly on planes. That one's claustrophobic. Mm. Each of us as a human being is struggling with something. And, and you talk about that. You talk about the sort of relativity of, yes. of suffering and how... Yeah, oh, I'm glad you pointed that. You know, that was a little passage that I that I was pleased with because, you know, one of the things you can say is, oh, you big deal, you can't pee on planes. It's a poor fellow, right? There are a lot of people who have things far worse, which is unquestionably true. Women with eating disorders, you know, can be 
are terribly afflicted, right? It can really be uh, life-threatening. But as I say in the book, you know, it's true that, you know, I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. But the only way we can understand what it's like to have no feet is by having no shoes. Mm -hmm. It's only through recognizing our own disabilities that we can extend our circles of compassion and recognize what it feels like for other people to have still worse disabilities. So I don't think we should ever apologize for being public about our own comic, humiliating, shameful uh, phobias and, and, and aversions because they're part of our common humanity, and it's by diving into them that we're able to understand other people's humanity too. You referenced Malcolm Gladwell a few times, uh, and he said that he felt this book was just a a process of you falling in love with people over and over again. All these wonderful teachers you meet. And the first one we meet in the book is your art teacher, who you come across at a very boring kind of school parent dinner. dinner, Yes. (laughs) Um, And then he teaches you to see differently, to to make marks differently, to make the beauty of a, an erased mark perhaps more beautiful than the original mark itself. Yeah, yes, Jacob Collins um, is a leading kind of neo-Renaissance representational painter. He, as I explain in the book, is an immensely engaging guy, has become a very good friend, but he believes that art took a fundamentally wrong turn in 1855. You know, you meet people who say, I love uh, Matisse, but I can't stand Jeff Koons. He hates it all. He thinks everything that we think of as modern art is wrong. And that's one reason why I wanted to study with him, because you can study with anyone who's going to tell you, oh, just express yourself, not someone who's going to say, you look at that classical plaster and you draw that, right, or you look at that naked body. But he he was a wonderful teacher. One of the things I realized about great teachers is, you know, the, the Greeks always had the myth of the centaur. The centaurs were the great teachers. If you think about it, it's quite profound. It says it's not the easy, likable person who's a great teacher. It's the wild man or the wild woman who you can learn from. Yeah. And Jacob is a centaur. And one of the things he taught me was not only to look more deeply at naked bodies uh, week after week, but to find a whole set of kind of little subroutines, shortcuts, looking at a human face as though it were a clock face, and then just making what he called tilts in time in order to understand the articulation of the face. If you did that sort of abstract, counterintuitive thing with enough perseverance, it would begin to become a face. So I learned, I learned drawing from him, never well, but I understood, and it was a kind of compensatory act for me too as an art critic who had gone wrong. I mean, because you do point out that the book is a self-help book that is... Won't help. help In in fact, that was originally, (laughs) I will confess, the opening sentence. This is a self-help book that won't help. Won't help you find shortcuts to doing these things. Will help you, I think, understand how you became a self in the first place. You also learned to box. I mean, there's wonderful, wonderful writing about that. We don't have a lot of time. (laughs) So really what I, I wanted to conclude with was you talk about the literary life as a boxing arena. Yes. Well, you know, writers have always been in love with boxing, and I love boxing, and and, uh, Hemingway and Mailer and so on all have done it. It seems to me, though, that the truth is is that though it's understandable that writers who tend to be belligerent competitive people in need of a channel for it would be drawn to it, but it seems to me it's not really like it because if you box the way we write, you'd constantly be looking up at your partner in the stands and say, did you see the one I threw just then? Did you see the one I threw? I, I actually have another way of doing it. Hold on, hold on. let me show you this one too because that's what we really do as writers. We corner our spouses and say, can I read you this paragraph? Uh, if you don't like I redid it in a different way uh, again. But boxing connected me to my grandfather, my, my Jewish immigrant grandfather, and uh, it also reminded me of the fundamental truth that boxing is a defensive art, not a belligerent art. 
and always being reminded that the the core of the activity you're pursuing is usually the counterintuitive opposite, the fulcrum, the spring of it, is the counterintuitive opposite of the result of the activity is hugely instructive. How do you think you've grown in the process of writing all of this stuff? I, my children would snicker if I said I've grown in humility. <laughs> They'd say, please, Dad, give me a break. But I do think... I've learned that the power of things you don't expect to be. I said I was having a conversation with my mother over her boissons that I was long overdue to have but probably couldn't have had uh, face-to-face. The book ends, and it's my favorite part of the book, to be honest. My daughter, Olivia, who I've written about in more volumes of memoir than Winston Churchill, probably. But I like to write personal essays. I've written about Olivia since literally since the night she was born in Paris. And she went off to college and came out or in a certain sense came in to herself as a as queer as a lesbian and which was great and and right and nothing wrong with that and I was delighted about it but it meant again that we needed a new conversation between us so I said to her intuitively darling why don't we take formal dance lessons together and to my surprise she said yes dad that would be great and we both understood it was a way of sort of adding an ironic note to our long-standing romance you know our, our intimacy And we did in the middle of the pandemic, the height of the pandemic in New York. You couldn't go inside a dance studio. We had a wonderful dance teacher who had a boombox and would play Sinatra records. And there I would be with my daughter in my arms doing the foxtrot. And we loved doing it. We understood that we were participating in a highly gendered cliché. But exactly by re-participating in it, we were re-articulating our love for each other. And that's where the book ends. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you so much. What's the next thing that you're going to learn? I'm trying to learn to sing because musical theatre is my nights and weekends passion and I'm not really able to deliver my own song so I'm trying to take singing lessons now. Could you give us a little example? Of singing? Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 would do it, I would do it too poorly to count because I don't even know where my register is. Is it deep in the bass or is it, is it up, uh, up higher? But... Um, When I have mastered it, I will come back here and sing for you. Adam Gopnik, thank you very much indeed. The real work on The Mystery of Mastery by Adam Gopnik is published by River Run. It's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Monica Lillis and Steph Chungu. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.